Welcome to Arcade Bookshop, your podcast about video games and their literary counterparts for all of you who love to play and to read. I'm Bryce Yoli, and as always, I'm here with my pal and cousin-in-law, Caleb James. Today, we're also here with special guest, David L. Craddock, to talk about his book, Long Live Mortal Kombat Round 1, The Fatalities and Fandom of the Arcade Era. Super happy to have you on today, David. Oh, guys, thanks so much. Uh, we were talking before the cameras start rolling that it's taken a while. My fault, but I'm glad we could finally do it. Glad we're finally here. Oh yeah, no worries. Glad to have you for sure. It's like uh, you're like the you're actually. I don't know if you've looked into our podcast at all, but you're our first guest. <laughs> and uh, hey, look at that! What an honor. That's cool. Yeah, it's introductory. It's, like, it's I, I feel like you're the perfect first guest because you know you're not. You know, we talk about books and games, and you're not just in one vein or the other. You're you're right there doing both. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like I've I've been doing narrative design for games off and on since about 2008. Definitely write more about them, but it's interesting how the two inform one another. Like you have those people, especially online, where they're like, "Why don't they do this? That's two lines of code." And I'm like, "It is not that." You know, so <laughs> you know, you have that that uh, that perspective informs a lot of the stories I write. Yeah, that's so interesting. I. And I don't know anything about that end of things. I, I listen to podcasts about games, and I always hear the the hosts like talking about the things they know about development and stuff, and that's always super intimidating to me. So, like, do you what 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 of what do you know of that? I know that. So, I would say my first brush with it was when I was writing um, the Stay a While and Listen series about Diablo and Blizzard. Yeah. And I, I arranged an interview. I lived in Northern California at the time. So I, I was thinking back on this the other day, how much things have changed because I bought, I had this like crappy Bluetooth speaker and I would set my electronic recorder next to it to record the audio from phone calls. <laughs> and now, you know, like, you know, that I graduated to audacity some years ago. And now most of the time I just use zoom because the video and audio and that tends to be crystal clear. Hmm. Um, but when I lived in Northern California, when I wasn't doing that, uh, actually a lot of the ex Diablo and Diablo two developers live around there. So I was just driving around and, um, I met Joe Morrissey, who was the, I don't remember what his official title was on Diablo two, probably just writer. And he told me that one of the most important lessons he learned was that you can't just be a writer in video games, unless you're a contractor who's there just to like, there are a lot of contract writers who are told, hey, we need a premise, come up with something. They write it, they send it in, and then it changes a lot, but it's a good jumping off point for the studio. Doom 2016 started that way. Like they hired a writer, Hugo Martin was like, okay, this is a cool premise. And then they just kind of like made this like Mr. Potato Head Frankenstein's monster <laughs> thing of a story. Um, but Joe said when he would come up with, he was writing like dialogue, uh, quest objectives. And he said that when he would, come up with this stuff he would have to take it to one of the programmers to actually put it into the game because he couldn't code and didn't know how to do it himself so he recommended that you know you have a little bit of experience in the industry you know talk to programmers talk to artists and that's actually what i found as a narrative designer i definitely started out just you know writing stuff from home submitting it who knows if it would make it in or what form it would take but now with what I'm doing, I'm a narrative designer at Romero Games as a contractor. 
Um, but we're doing a lot of things like when we come up with characters or quests, we have to talk like we have meetings with level design, meetings with with the art team. And it's really just this multidisciplinary approach so that, you know, you're not just writing words. You have to tell a story using um, every component, every facet of what makes a video game great. Like actually some of my least favorite games. I, I'm very unlikely to play a game where you just stand around reading text or talking to people back and forth, mm -hmm. right? Like read a book or watch a movie. That's what that <laughs> is. Um, I, lo I like it when games use environmental design. You see a lot of that in games like, like Diablo, like Dark Souls, stuff like that. And I, I can get sucked into a good story, but I think the gameplay has to be there too. And there's story going on, even though you're not reading, watching, or listening to people talk, you know? Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's quite a balance that has to be struck there that I think it's few and far between the games that actually execute that really well. Um, and I, yeah, like I really like, I think I mentioned the last of us. I know people, um, some people say like, Oh, the story is great, but they don't really talk about the gameplay. And if you watch the HBO adaptation, it's like they took the cut scenes and cut out all the gameplay. Right. <laughs> and that's because we don't, we don't need like three hours of, of uh, Pedro Pascal, just kind of like crab walking, sneaking up on people <laughs> to execute them. But, like that game didn't need to be mechanically complex. Like it's a really strong survival and horror game. And it was just enough of what it needed to be to kind of drive the story forward. So, you know, that's just another lesson. You just don't overthink things. And that's, it's not, it was intimidating to me too at first, but then you realize it's like any career, you have a lot to learn. And as you, as you do it, you'll learn things, gain experience. And before you know it, it's just another day at the office sort of thing. Yeah. How much do they rush you with timelines and deadlines? I would say it depends on the project, um, which is why it's, it's fun because a lot of companies will bring on writers very late in the process because you can tell that story doesn't really matter to their game. Like with StarCraft 1 and 2, they made up a bunch of missions. And really the missions mechanically were just ways to show off Blizzard's editor that they shipped with the games. And then they'd bring in a writer like, hey, wrap some words around all the beats in this level, you know. <laughs> um, but if it's earlier in the process, like when I, I was a writer on uh, Marvel Heroes Online, and they said, okay, you need to write, they're called barks, which is just the sort of dialogue you hear in all sorts of situations. When you're fighting, when you're getting damaged, when you're just like hanging around in town. Um, they said, you know, we need dialogue or barks for, we need Cable, we need X-23, we need Psylocke, Punisher. I don't remember the fifth one, but um, that involved me going to Barnes and Noble, buying a stack of graphic novels and being like, hell yeah, this is research now. <laughs> Just like yeah. getting an idea, you know, of all the characters' personalities and also like, hey, what would Cable say if he came across Peter Parker and coming up with little references, uh, you know, little Easter eggs that fans will get, but also that are accessible to everyone playing, even if they don't read every comic book ever, ever written. So that's a that's an example of where I had a lot of time. I would say at Romero Games, we have certain deadlines, like when you're working on a prototype or a certain slice of the game. But even that is, uh, you know, John and Brenda Romero run that company. They're great with schedules. Like you, I haven't yet encountered a situation where they're like, we need this yesterday. Um, so you have a lot of time to like collaborate with everyone and, and get things right, which is nice.
Well, that's good because I hear a lot of horror stories in the gaming industry. You know, reminds you like the uh, the old Atari ET. Just this needs to be done immediately, <laughs> and then it just turns out it's the worst thing ever, or full of bugs or something. Yeah, that sort of thing happens more than you would imagine. So in 2019, I published this book called Arcade Perfect, which is about home versions of coin-op games. Because as a kid, I loved like getting like an issue of GamePro and doing these side-by-side comparisons of like Mortal Kombat for Super NES and Genesis. And I, as a kid, I was like, why do they look different? And more importantly, which one am I going to ask for this Christmas? Because obviously, I'm only going to get one, right? And it just fascinated me. So I wrote this book where I interviewed people who made ports for all sorts of systems. Like I talked to um, the developer who ported Pac-Man to the Atari 2600, which is another very maligned port. But I also talked to programmer, the, the one programmer, who ported Mortal Kombat to Genesis. And I was thinking like, wow, you know, Mortal Kombat was a big deal in arcades. Surely they wanted to like give it all the time and love and attention it needed. No. This guy had two months. He did not have the source code to the game. So his research was midway sent him a cabinet. He was in his office. He would play and then code and play and then code and just hope that things were like close enough. And yeah, it's Mortal Kombat. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, it's Mortal Kombat, Mortal Monday, big deal. But also it's just the the next project on deck. We've got more. So just get that thing out the door. That happens so frequently. (laughs) It's amazing because I had the Genesis version growing up. And mm-hmm. I remember just being very good at it. And now if I go back and play it on an emulator or something, I'm terrible. <laughs> uh, but then the Nintendo version sucked too because there was no blood. You just punch sweat out of their head. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the, so the Genesis, you know, like on average has um, like weaker graphics and sound than the Super Nintendo. But I thought that worked in Mortal Kombat's favor. There was like a grittiness to it that made it, feel right for mortal Kombat, like this down dirty dark tournament and i love the genesis version of that game yeah that was my favorite but I, I suck at it now too i suck <laughs> yeah. at it now too it's so, just yeah. i don't know it's this it's so simple but it's just very hard at least for me anyway <clears throat> you were talking earlier but about... i actually oh go ahead galen oh go ahead okay <laughs> i was just gonna say i, I actually uh started like the first time i ever played mortal kombat was actually in an arcade so i got to compare the original version to you know the subsequent ports that came out and i feel like a lot of people now if they play the originals they don't actually have that experience unless they get one of those uh you know tabletop arcade emulators which i mean they're not too expensive now but uh once you go down that wormhole then you're getting into tournaments and stuff and I don't have enough yeah. of a time in my life for that. Yeah, same. And it, it's just really interesting that, especially Mortal Kombat, any franchise that's been around that long, that means that every Mortal Kombat is someone's first Mortal Kombat. And that's why I like that. I love Mortal Kombat 1. I think it's my favorite fighting game of the year. Um, I was on the Mortal Kombat side of the playground as a kid during the street fighter versus mortal Kombat, <laughs> brouhaha is at recess but i liked both but mortal Kombat, i love the characters i love the story but if you think about it like 30 years not everyone's gonna you know start that story at chapter one so i love that mortal Kombat one wasn't a reboot but more of a reimagining like what if we like turn each character 90 degrees so to speak what would that right. look like and that stuff i think it's fun yeah, that's awesome. I I actually haven't I haven't played the last several Mortal Kombat games. Uh, I I don't remember what the last one I played was. It was like the the big one that in like the P- PS3 era. 
but mm-hmm. I I am very eager to get back to I mean after Mortal Kombat one. So I mean I've been hearing you talk a little bit about it. It does you know it sounds it sounds like it's an excellent like comeback to it. Yeah, it really is. And like I said, I, so Mortal Kombat, I didn't know this. I would have assumed it's Street Fighter, but Mortal Kombat is the best-selling fighting game franchise in the world. Number two is Smash Brothers, and number three is Street Fighter, but they're both distant second and third compared to Mortal Kombat. Now, not that sales is the only metric by which we measure the success of something, right? But I was thinking about, well, why is that? And it's because when you buy a Street Fighter game, like, it's not exactly deep story, right? Like what, what is Ryu's deal? Oh, he's traveling the world to find someone who can beat him up. Like that's, that's his whole thing. <laughs> like who's good enough to beat me up. And so far he's, he's still just looking for that, but mortal Kombat, you can get interested in the character. So there are a lot of people who buy mortal Kombat games just, just for the story mode. And maybe they'll play with friends, but they're not trying to like get all the, the frame data and debate tier lists and stuff. Whereas street fighter is, much more of that like street fighter 6 is obviously already huge in the tournament scene it got a head start on mortal kombat 1 because uh sf6 came out before evo but i love playing mortal kombat 1 and i love watching it as well i think that so you know you know the gist right like you pick a character and then you pick a cameo and it's not like a tag team you just like call them in to do moves every once in a while but the cameo that you choose can dramatically change the way you would play your character. Like I, I love Katana. She's always been my favorite character. So mm-hmm. I play Katana and Sonya, which is great for juggles. But then if you bring in Sub-Zero as your cameo, he can actually give you armor so you can absorb some hits. It's really fun. And I feel like when you play a Street Fighter game, you pretty much know what that is. But Mortal Kombat is fresh every time. And I always look forward to seeing how they're going to change things up. Well, Mortal Kombat just has such a deep lore, too, that uh, Street Fighter, just like you said, it's kind of surface-level story. It's more just about tournament fighting and things like that. Because um, I remember I had the 64, what was that game? Uh, Mortal Kombat Mythologies, the Sub-Zero game. Mm-hmm. And it was such a cool story, but the game just sucked. <laughs> but it was one of those things where it's like they could have really branched off and had a bunch of games like that that would have been really, because each character has a cool story to go along uh that's why everyone has their favorite characters and i would have really loved to see them explore that a little more but i guess that game must have failed so didn't do well enough that they made any more yeah they, i think they tried twice more there was special forces special forces which was even worse and then i don't know if you've ever played this if you haven't you should check it out they made a game called mortal kombat shaolin monks which uh, was the story of, I think it was like the first two games, but you can play, you play as Liu Kang and Kung Lao, and it's really just a beat-em-up, but it's in 3D, and you fight in these iconic locations, like you fight in Goro's lair, you fight on the, the bridge over the pit, and it's just a beat-em-up. You're like, you gain experience, you're learning moves, and it's actually a lot of fun, but the weird thing is that game was very successful, but they haven't made any like that since. I think it's because maybe since Warner Brothers has owned them, Warner Brothers is like, hey, we just want the one-on-one Mortal Kombat's. Who cares about these these spinoffs? But I'd love right. to see more. But if you haven't checked out Shadow Monks, you should. I just looked that up. I did play that. I didn't have it. My brother had mm-hmm. it. I was trying to figure out what system that was on. Um, that was like around 2005-ish, I think. So that was like, I took mm-hmm. a break from video games in my early 20s. And that was like right when I hit that break. So I remember playing the game. I must have rented it or something. For, you know, Bryce, they used right. to rent games in stores. <laughs> He's a little younger than us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm 29, 
And uh, how how terribly old are you, Caleb? I am thirty-seven. <laughs> oh, guys, listen, gather around because forty-one-year-old me is going to tell you whippersnappers <laughs> what it's all about. And it's all about video games and books. Meeting adjourned. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Works for me, right? So, <laughs> you and I, David, we met at the uh, Cleveland Gaming Classic back in was it September? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Ten years ago, it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Back <laughs> yeah. I just like you were the one place I st- one stand I stopped at, and I was like, "This is the one of the only unique uh, little places in this whole this whole." Uh, airport hangar it seemed like uh uh, you know everybody's just like selling their collections of uh old games and stuff which is awesome um but i was i i went there hoping to make some connections with some people and i didn't expect to see any any writers or anything so i was really interested in your stuff um if i had more money i would have bought all of your books but (laughs) but i I appreciate that (laughs) i did buy uh uh, long live Mortal Kombat, and uh, I'm only a, a a little bit into it, but it looks fascinating. But before we talk about the actual book, um, I'm curious how exactly you got into writing nonfiction about games in general, because you also have uh, you have a few other books about other games, like uh, the one I remember off the top of my head is like the Shovel Knight one, right? Right. Yeah. So this started. Um... I, I, I kind of traveled the video game journalism route where my first job, which wasn't really like a job, was for this now defunct site called mygamer.com. And it was total volunteer basis, but we would get sent games to review. So if there's a game you're interested in anyway, you signed on to review it. And if it was complete poop, well, oh, well, you got a free game. And if it was great, awesome. You just saved 50 or 60 bucks. Um, and then I started writing for, for Shack News, and then I did a lot of freelance with like IGN, Games Radar, some mm. magazines. And I just found that a lot of the pitches, I, I would, some people would come to me for assignments like, hey, you want to review this game? Others I would pitch. And I just found that I really liked telling stories about the people. Like I, when I write a book like London Mortal Kombat, Shovel Knight, whatever it is, I view games and technology as a stage and the developers as the characters. Like if you if you if you don't really care about them, then the game is kind of meaningless. Especially mm-hmm. games from like the eighties, nineties, early two thousands, when the teams were very small. So everyone's personality made a huge impact. And I I was this is around when I was getting into game development. Um, I was doing some writing on the rebooted version of, of Hellgate London. And I was working with um, John Warren, Kelly Johnson, Eric Sexton, and Michio Akamura, all of whom worked on Diablo and Diablo 2. And I, I started hanging out with Eric Sexton. Like, I'd go over to his house, and we'd play EDF on his Xbox 360. And on the way home one day, I was like, man, these guys all made Diablo. Someone should really write a book about that. <laughs> And like 30 seconds later, I was like, hang on. <laughs> so and I, I started asking them, like, hey, guys, can I interview you? And it just snowballed from there. I would interview them, and they would give me uh, contacts to their friends and former colleagues, and it just kind of built up from there. And it really did kind of snowball. Like, after Stay Wild and Listen round one was finished, I started reaching out to game developers 
to see if they want to read it and write a little blurb. And I talked to uh, Julian Gollop, who created XCOM, and he really liked it. And I said, Julian, would you mind if I interviewed you and wrote a story about XCOM? He was like, sure. Uh, and that was Monsters in the Dark, which came out in, in 2021. And really, it's just kind of snowballed from there to the point where I've made a lot of these different connections and have gotten to do some pretty fun stuff. Like, um, you know, I made this this uh, with a team. We made this uh, first-person shooter documentary called FPS First-Person Shooter. Very creative title. <laughs> um, and, you know, between that and interviewing John Romero so much, and actually I read an early draft of his uh, memoir, Doom Guy, and made some suggestions because he wanted to know, like, hey, we know you're a big classic id software fan. What stories do you want to know? And it got to the point where uh, he acknowledged me in the acknowledgments as the foremost chronicler of FPS history, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, and then cool. Just, yeah. And then so like in July, uh, I was invited by John and his publisher out to Comic-Con to interview him on stage at San Diego Comic-Con. So you just, it really just goes to show that the more you work on this stuff, you're just building bridges, even if you can't see them at the time. You get these opportunities. Ideally, you say yes, because those opportunities will lead to more. And I just, I really love to tell stories. I've, I've done like reviews and previews. Not as into that. Don't really do it as much anymore unless a game really interests me because I would just rather tell these stories. And I write some fiction as well, but I have a lot more nonfiction about video games out there. And that's obviously what I'm most well known for just because I, I can't stop doing it. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask you about your uh, your fiction, too, um, as I noticed some of it on your website, but I, I didn't remember seeing it. I, I don't know if I saw it for sure at the uh, at the convention. So when you came, uh, it's funny that that uh, that show went really well, because as you pointed out, there aren't often people selling books there or even movies, because like how many people get to work on a movie? realistically you mostly see people selling their thank you a new drink just arrived i'm very excited about it. um <laughs> uh, you mostly see people selling games from their retro collections and stuff and it's like that stuff is cool but like i've been to 17 tables that have a copy of super mario 64 yeah. right so by the time you got there um i was pretty surprised and happy that i had sold out of the fiction oh um, that stuff i think is more accessible because there are a lot of people yeah they're like there are a lot of people there who just go either with you know their partner who's into video games or maybe they take their kids and they're not as into that stuff but they want to sit back with like a fantasy novel or, or whatever and um it tends to do pretty well there well that's awesome yeah i that, that's surprising good for you man because <laughs> you know caleb writes fiction and i write yeah, poetry and you know nice Oh man, that's that's awesome! I love to read some of your stuff. What do you guys? Uh, what do you what do you like to write? What sort of fiction? Well, I write mostly. Uh, well, I was writing like literary stuff for a while, but I've been switch. I've been having more um, publishing acceptances from genre stuff, so I think I'm just going to switch to that for a while. That seems to be uh, more fun to write anyway. Um, I think you you wrote fantasy, right? That was your fiction books. Yeah, I've done those. I, I sold to a publisher, and I'm, I'm working on one now that's like literary horror. Let's see if I can pull that off. That I'm Ooh. hoping to shop around uh, sometime next year. And that's like, um, I, I do that just because I, I found that 
I write about video games so much that I don't want to feel like I'm retreading ground, telling the same story, but with different, you know, companies and games. So the fiction yeah. is just kind of a way to like, you know, stay sharp, exercise other writing muscles that you might not use in nonfiction and vice versa. Do you find that just the video game stuff still leaches into your fiction or just I mean the, you know, the way you would tell a story uh, in a video game, does that have any play in what your fiction's like? Yeah, subconsciously and consciously. I think even uh, Brandon Sanderson said a few years ago that, you know, hey, this the, the next generations of writers will all have grown up with video games in some form. And so you can expect to see that stuff more. And there was the usual opposition at first, like, oh, video games, but a lot of fantasy novels, a lot of genre fiction shares a lot in common with video, video games in the first place. Now it's just more acknowledged as, you know, a point of reference. Um, so yeah, I think that especially as video game storytelling grows more sophisticated, the, a, a lot of them really feel like there's stories where you're like, oh wow, I'd read this or I'd watch a movie of it versus like, you know, Pong and Pac-Man. If somebody pulls off a Pong movie, I'll eat my words, but I don't see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find a lot of times when just if I'm writing a scene, sometimes I'm thinking of it as how you would play it in a video game almost or watch it in a movie, like how it unfolds. And I... <laughs> Imagine what it was like to be a writer before video games and even before movies would be hard too, because the way scenes unfold would be completely different in your head, I think. Yeah, I tend to do the same thing, not necessarily video games, that or movies, uh, which is kind of funny. I'm not really like a big movie or TV guy. I watch them, but I figured that if I can write it more or less the way I see it in my head, and maybe you find this as well, that I'm hoping it'll come across that way on the page so that people can kind of see it in their heads as well you know it just seems to be yeah, more gripping. Picture it a little better yeah exactly that's something i would have to explore in the future when i talk to people just to see like how many writers have that approach where are you actually seeing your scenes as movies or video game scenes or are you just you know because i forget who it was i talked to not too long ago but i think they said they didn't have the inner monologue like some people don't have that so the yeah. way they see the world is almost like a movie like when they think of things it's just in pictures which i can't really mm -hmm. fathom that so i can't imagine like most of those people aren't creatives in at least in the regards to writing and stuff like that but i think that'd be interesting to see how someone would write from that perspective as well it's like oh i just oh can only picture things i can't describe them in words and then you want to write them it's like huh, i don't know right but, um, yeah yeah but it's, it's just interesting how people go about their 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 fiction especially from you because you do a lot of non-fiction stuff so that's like a completely different gear to switch because i've written some non-fiction stuff but i just find that uh i i struggle with trying not to be too dry yeah that's definitely a struggle i have a friend who he's also a writer and he's also in academia and his stuff tends to be he, you know, he writes a lot of essays and like scholarly paper papers, which the subject matter is interesting, but you know, the writing can be dry almost out of necessity. So that's actually, um, I, I think you're, I think you're right that like it can be dry unless you're very careful about it. One reason I write literary nonfiction is it's a goal of mine to write true stories as if you're reading as uh you're reading a novel right because that's just yeah. that's also why i don't get right into video games i spend a few chapters introducing the developers because if you care about the characters you know 
then you'll care about what they do. And they happen to make video games, or whereas a character in a novel might be doing something else. But if you care about them, you care about what they're going to do, right? It's kind of the same thing, but applied to different types of writing. Yeah, if you could write them almost as if they're fictitious characters, then the people who read, you know, your audience, they'll actually, like you said, they'll care about them more. And it makes it more fun, too, because, you know, if you look at most people's lives, just, oh, you go to work, even if you're developing video games, it's kind of boring. Like, it's, you tell people yeah. about it, they probably don't care. They don't want to hear you talk about coding. But if you can make that person right. seem more exciting and the, the obstacles they have in their life uh, is more dramatic, and then you can really write nonfiction in a fun and engaging way that people actually uh, want to read. And that's, like I said, that's tough for me. I don't, I would have to really, really work on that. And I just, I don't want to. I don't have any topics that I'm that passionate about that I really want to go into like that. That's perfectly valid because I think that what people find, whether you're a writer, whether you make movies, games, music, whatever it is, I feel like there's some stories that, um, you know, if you have the idea nine times out of 10, you're the one who can tell that story and it needs to be told your way. And you know, it's okay if you're not into certain types of, of genres because someone else is there taking care of that. You can do your thing and people will seek out stories because of, of you. I've, I've noticed that a lot of people online have, um, they bought Long Live Mortal Kombat even though they're more into like strategy games or whatever because they're like, oh, this is a David Craddock book. And that's still kind of, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years next month. But it's still kind of surprising. Like you get, I get into such a zone and I'm usually so busy that once a book is out there, I forget about it until someone's mentioned <laughs> it. I'm like, Oh yeah. Awesome. Thank you for reading that. I vaguely remember writing it sort of thing, you know, <laughs> um, which is something else I've found too, like with novels, with nonfiction, I've, I get less stressed over any roadblocks I might hit because I know that, you know, the last book I wrote, I was stressing over this, that, and the other. Now I can't even remember what it is. And so this too shall pass kind of thing, you know? Well, that makes me wonder because I know um, a lot of YouTube documentaries and I think just channels dedicated to the making of video games and stuff have become really popular. And I, I catch myself watching them sometimes just because, you know, like we we're talking about the fiction or the nonfiction, but they, they do it in such a way where it's entertaining, even though it should be dry. But have you ever come across any that have maybe, well, I guess it'd be hard to know unless they actually sourced you, but you ever think oh, they cribbed my work they read my mortal Kombat book and now they're made a documentary and used a bunch of portions from it um like i said i don't know how you would know that but that'd be something to look forward to, or look to i guess i'll tell you exactly how i would know so this is pretty funny you use the exact right verb cribbed um i don't know if you guys remember game trailers i used to love their work because they would put out video reviews but they'd also put out retrospectives and they were really good <laughs> and um one day they published this retrospective on diablo and i was like wow this is a pretty deep dive most people don't know this stuff and then they actually showed a picture that only i had because oh. i was in it i don't know from stay a while and listen i'm like okay interesting i got to the end and they didn't credit me and that bothered me because i didn't feel like i was like missing out on like credit or whatever but like i did the work and you didn't so i actually contacted them and they were like oh yeah sorry um you know that's our mistake and they they changed it to just to kind of like credit me 
And I think that was important because as a journalist, I would feel very uncomfortable if I found out something and then did not attribute it to the source. That's just not right, in my opinion. I think that's where, that's often where a lot of video game journalism goes wrong. People, the field, and even now more so with influencers, nothing against influencers, but a lot of them, they don't consider themselves journalists because they just want a YouTube channel where they talk about games and say they don't really think about journalistic practices like A, citing sources and B, attributing those sources. And it can be very loose. And I just feel like if, if you're going to do the work, you would want someone to, to give you a credit just to acknowledge where that came from. Right. So that very thing happened. And like I said, it was hilarious to see a picture uh, of me with the co-creators of Diablo. I'm like, okay, well, I, I know where they got the stuff now. And sure enough, stay a while and listen. Book two was not out yet. So when they released their Diablo two retrospective, it was like a fraction of the time. Because, you know, I hadn't published all of these stories yet, so they didn't really have anything to crib from. Well, I've watched some documentaries that were very well done, and when I'm watching them, I go, wait a minute, is this person like a journalist or something? Are they writing books? And if you actually look into them, they just make videos, and then you have to wonder, okay, that means they're researching for these videos. Where are they getting the information from? And boom, there, they're reading your books, and then they're not citing any of, you know, they're not crediting you. And they're not citing their sources. They're just pretty much regurgitating, maybe paraphrasing at best what you are. Right. You know, like you said, you did the work. So they're just taking your information. And that's uh, I don't like that. That makes me feel icky. And then especially because, like, like I said, the videos are well done. So it's like, oh, I enjoyed this. But now I feel like a piece of shit because the actual yeah. creator is not, you know, at least credited, let alone paid. Yeah, and it, it happens so often. I remember, you know, I, I love the Dark Souls games, and I watch uh, this creator, his name is Vadi Vidya, who would make these lore videos. And he he makes, he writes these really beautiful scripts, does great cinematography. I think he has the PC versions, because you can kind of, like, reverse engineer them and, like, you know, get all sorts of cool camera shots and stuff. But he was using community creations, and he eventually got embroiled in some issue where he wasn't attributing he wasn't doing it on purpose. It's just something he didn't think of. An ongoing concern of mine, like like if you have a YouTube channel, you can do whatever you want. Not so. <laughs> you know, you need to learn mm. some at least some basic like journalism one on one practices, just so you don't get caught up in anything like that. I mean, you can get in trouble too. Like if somebody, I mean, you could oh, have yeah. probably got that channel kicked off or something because you know, I mean. I guess they went back and credited you but if you wanted to you'd be like hey that's you know some kind of copyright here Get, fuck off you know yeah I, that's exactly what i did i'm like look I, i'm a big fan but this is my work and if you don't attribute me we we can go to court over this and i wasn't trying to like throw weight around i didn't really have any weight to throw at this time but i was like look this is this is clearly like you're aping my stuff you're not crediting it you will have a problem here and they were great about it right I, well a lot of the time i think it's it could be attributed to these younger people, they just like, you know, they don't know the journalistic practices. They never learned them. They just say, like, Oh, I just want to make videos. And they don't even, it's an afterthought. They don't even think, Oh, when I read something, I have to credit the person that wrote that same with music and anything else. A lot of times they'll use things and unless they get a copyright strike, they'll just keep it. You know, they don't credit the source or anything. Yeah. I mean, even other videos like YouTubers often, you know, kind of run in circles 
and you know, they have to credit each other's videos or they don't have to, but they should, right? It's just something that, that everyone should, should learn. Well, there's a big thing where they steal people's gameplay videos for their videos. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, because it's easier than recording you playing the game. I don't have time to play this game for how many hours. I'll just take clips from somebody else and combine it in such a way that it, you might not be able to find it unless you, that actual creator saw my video. And it's like, that's kind of shitty too, because then you're somebody who spent hours playing a video game and you just took it. Like, you didn't do any of the effort or any of the work and you just talk over it and get probably money. A lot of these people are getting paid through av uh, advertisers and whatnot. Yeah, we, we ran into that on the FPS documentary. I, I recorded a lot of footage for that. We also, if backers pledged at or above a certain level, we would tell them, hey, we need you know clips with this sort of subject from this game, and they could submit clips. And we also did take like 10 to 15 minute chunks from other YouTube videos, but we always cited them because like, you know, that's fair use depending on how you use it. But if you use too much of it, it's not for use and you shouldn't be doing that. So one of the producers is like, well, it's just gameplay. I mean, everyone could have the same gameplay. I'm like, ah, they don't. So let's credit them, yeah. you know, credit where credit to do sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was wondering about that kind of thing. I, I, I heard another podcast that you were on uh, where you were talking about copyright issues uh, with intellectual property that doesn't belong to you. And, uh, it's something that I have a hard time understanding. Like I, I get it in general because I, you know, I had journalism in college and whatever. Uh, and it's, you know, I get the basic aspects of it, but, uh, as a now content creator, um, you know, I'm making the podcast plus I'm trying to, uh, have some kind of presence online with, you know, <laughs> TikTok and crap, uh, which I hate, but, right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> like, you know, trying to advertise it, and use it because we're talking about video games and we're talking about books. The easiest way to attract attention to it is to use the covers of both of those things. How and I see everybody doing that, but I feel uncomfortable doing it because it's not mine, even if I have it. And I don't know what the rules are around that. If I'm actually like allowed to, to some degree, use any portion of that, if I like crop it up or something or anything like that. I don't know if you know anything about that. Yeah, I've, I've learned more and more about it as the years go by just because I've had to look more into it. Um, like if you look at the copyright page of Mortal Kombat, Long Live Mortal Kombat, I think it actually says like, hey, you know, anything longer than this, you need permission from the author, from the publisher to use it. Um, and there are a lot of ways you can cite work in a YouTube video. Like you could put a little footnote on the screen while you're like showing someone else's gameplay clip, for example, mm. or you could put it in the notes. You could put it in a little credit section at the end. I think that basically the general rule of thumb is if you found something out from someone else, then just give them a shout, you know, um, it, it really is that easy. And then I, th I think a lot of where it gets murky is fair use boils down to this. If what you are borrowing from is used for educational purposes, you're pretty much in the clear. Like if I wanted to show a big screenshot, a big image in Long Live Mortal Kombat of, you know, concept art, I would need to be talking about the concept art and explaining why it's relevant to the story. I can't just use that concept art, you know, so you have to be able to point to something and say this I included because I talk about this in the story sort of thing 
does it exonerate you if you like you said about uh just using somebody's gameplay but you credit them because i see that a lot too which is the right way to do it but if that person didn't give you permission and they actually do say hey i don't want you to use my my gameplay clip you know remove it or remove the video uh do you, is that just word you think you have to do that or can you just be i'm speaking for youtube i know there's other avenues people use but uh do you actually have to follow through and either remove their clip or the thing um the whole video or can you just be like no i'm not doing it and just keep it because you credited them so basically the the answer falls somewhere in the middle if what you are using falls under fair use I wouldn't say, oh, I'm keeping it. I'd say, look, we just used this for, because it does fall under fair use, but we did credit you and point to point people to your channel. Cause that's something I strongly believe in yeah. because of what happened to me with game trailers. Um, but the thing about fair use is you can only use so much material. Like I couldn't use every piece of Mortal Kombat concept art ever. Cause that's obviously there's a line and I'm like pole vaulting over the line. You know, um, I think even with video, like you can only use even even an FPS when we did need to use someone else's video. I don't think we ever use more than like five to six seconds. And I think the the general rule is probably more like 15 to 20. But I didn't even want to approach that because I didn't want to. I feel exploitative. You know what I mean? Um, And that's why we're definitely careful to uh, to to cite everyone. And really, the only times we do that were there were certain FPS games that weren't even online anymore or that the servers were down and we couldn't replicate whatever we were being told in an interview. So we had to find a clip that matched it and then say, okay, we're only going to use this many seconds and we're going to, you know, credit them. I think it's music that they really hit harder at. And that's probably just the YouTube algorithms. But, you know, if you even use a small clip of someone, you know, someone's music that has a record label behind them, not an indie person, you just immediately get a strike for that a lot of times or they remove the video. Yeah, a lot of it does depend on the industry and also the creator. Um, The only reason Let's Play videos are allowed to exist is because most developers and publishers agree that it's free marketing, right? Um, Now, if a publisher would ever sue someone, take them to court and win, Let's Plays are dead. That could happen almost any time, but most people won't do it because if you're playing a game online, even if you're trashing it, even if it's terrible, someone out there is probably gonna buy a copy of it because they saw it and were interested in it to some degree. Well, I've seen that already happen with anime channels where there'll be an like say an anime channel that's just dedicated to a specific anime if the studio mm-hmm. which has happened decides that hey we have new stuff coming out and we don't want this online even if it's just old you know even if it's stuff from the 80s uh they crack down and the whole channel just gets removed and then you mm-hmm. have people like i don't know what to do i had all these videos and all this stuff and it just they can't do anything about it uh that's one thing i always worried about like you you know with the let's play is like that could happen I mean, if they really wanted to crack down for them, it's beneficial, but you'd think for yeah. the anime companies, it'd be beneficial as well because your their product, especially older stuff is still getting views and people still care about it. But, you know, uh, the anime stuff, that's like the Japanese market a lot of the time. So I, they, maybe they view things a little differently, but, uh, so far the U S market seems to be kinder when it comes to uh, video game content anyway, uh, movies as well. Um, music, not so much. And, 
Uh, I'm not sure about the comic world, how that goes right now, but I've seen a lot of videos where uh, people complain about their comic material getting removed too because they're covering certain mm -hmm. books in, I guess, a non-educational way. Yeah, I don't, a lot of times, like I said, it depends not only in the, on the industry, but on the creators as well. Nintendo is infamously litigious. And the thing is, a lot of times, they are in the wrong. Like a lot of the stuff they do legally... They could enforce it, but um, it would hold up. But they do it anyway because they know like who's going to go to court with Nintendo. That's like the eight hundred pound gorilla. You know, they know that most people won't challenge them because if they had to, they could bury them in paperwork, or just you know, Nintendo's bank account is going to outlast mine, right? Yeah, um, it wouldn't be worth it. Yeah, most people just comply because it, it wouldn't be worth it but it, it really does depend on the industry like um even in fps uh, we were told a story about um the railgun in shadow warrior and quake 2 was in inspired by a similar weapon in the movie eraser with arnold schwarzenegger so we showed like a five second clip of arnold firing that weapon because again it was contextual we weren't just showing any old part it was hey this is directly related mm. and we just we, we cited the movie clip same thing same thing you would do with someone's youtube video you know some people get around that by just superimposing someone's head on arnold or something stupid like just like a goofy meme or something and then that's just apparently that works too yeah yeah there are all sorts of loopholes and again probably some company could sue for that even if they would lose but it just depends on who wants to throw their weight around honestly i mean they have to look at the channel too it's um independent youtuber that doesn't even have a million you know followers or subscribers they don't really care about those people it's the ones that are actually making money off of their product um and that, i mean there's i mean there's a lot of those too but i feel like uh those people have learned all these tricks and stuff to stay under the radar and not get in trouble as much yeah and it definitely helps if you play by the rules obviously you are much less likely to get uh, a copyright strike it could happen but it's more likely to happen like you said if you have a larger audience or if you're just fright flagrantly breaking the rules mm -hmm. hmm. well you want to talk about the book yeah let's talk about it <laughs> yeah so i like i said I, I i'm not real far into it yet but uh <clears throat> i read the introductions and uh, a little bit past that and it just it it sets you up for so much fun <laughs> and uh I, I mean just from the cover even you managed to get a forward by both john tobias the co-creator of mortal Kombat, and james rolf the angry video game nerd which caleb and i reference occasionally on the podcast so that was like that was my first attraction <laughs> like beyond it being about mortal Kombat. so like how were you able to connect with these people and uh and the other numerous big names in video games that you talked with throughout the book a lot of times it's like i was saying earlier you kind of gradually build up this rolodex like i met julian gallup because he liked my book on diablo and actually it was sort yeah. of i reached out to him i wasn't just like shotgunning or throwing darts at a wall uh xcom the atmosphere of xcom influenced diablo so i was like oh i should ask julian gallup about this in John Tobias's case, I approached him in 2019 
about Arcade Perfect because I kind of explained like, hey, in each of these, each chapter is about a port of a different game. I like to set up by telling the story of how the original was made, just so when you get to the port, you can understand how it was different and why. And I said, could I just, you know, shoot you, shoot some questions by you about Mortal Kombat? And I really, I interview people however they like, like uh, John Tobias preferred um, email. So we just sent questions back and forth. So when I contacted him again uh, to write Long Live Mortal Kombat, I basically said, hey, I'm going to write a whole book on MK. I've loved it since I was a kid. Could I interview you for that? And he actually did set certain conditions that I was happy to abide by. He said, well, yes, but I don't want you to quote me directly, although you can say that, you know, you talk to me because Ed Boone can't talk due to Warner Brothers. They, they, um, I'm hoping with the next books that I can get through the red tape because from what I've heard, I, I've been followed by like senior management people at Warner Brothers PR who have read the book. So I think that's a good sign. Unless any minute now I'm going to get a band hammer on me. Who knows? But, um, <laughs> you know, Ed couldn't talk to me because Ed can't just say, sure, he has to go through Warner Brothers PR. So John said, I don't really want to speak for both of us unless we can both be quoted, but you can definitely cite me. And I said, that's fine. But also, I don't take, you know, nothing against John or anyone, but I also, anything he'd say, I, I research to make sure it's legit. So that was how I talked to John Tobias, and especially, you know, all those books. He was, he was very helpful. And then I also talked to other people such as... Um, Ken Fidesna, who was the general manager of Midway's pinball and coin-up divisions. Ken's interview was really interesting because I had questions, but also as the GM there, he has, he has binders full of notes from like every meeting, like dated, what the topic was about. So he would actually say, you ready? And I was like, sure. So he just opened a binder and start reading me stuff for wherever I was interested in. So I got like specific like sales numbers, date, stuff like that from him. Wow. Um, James Rolfe, uh, video game nerds. I met him because I interviewed him for FPS first person shooter and I contacted him and said like, Hey, uh, I know you love Mortal Kombat. I saw your video. Would you be interested in reading this book and writing a forward? And he said, sure. So, um, yeah, he's just really nice. That's basically, that's how I met a lot of people. I don't just meet people through other people. Oftentimes if I want to write about a game, I'll just go on social media, usually LinkedIn and say, hey, I'm, I'm writing about a book. Can I talk to you? And you'd be surprised how many of them just say yes. Yeah, I, I've i learned that this past year, how everybody is just a person. And, <laughs> and like, like more times than not, if you just reach out, they're going to reply and they're going to want to help you in any way they can. Yeah. I I uh, reached out to, because I started writing, taking my writing seriously um, last last year, and uh, at the end of the year, I reached out to this poet who was published under the uh, the company that I interned with after college, and um, mm -hmm. just because he was like the one book that I that I really liked out of all of them, and I was like, he's never gonna reply, you know, he's 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 a busy guy, he's he's a you know he's a published poet, and <laughs> he wouldn't you know it. Like two weeks later, he replied, and he gave me all this advice and uh, helped me to get accepted get my uh, get a my first chat book accepted somewhere so uh yeah and i i've, I've just been doing That's that awesome. uh, thank you yeah i've just been doing that uh ever since just like acknowledging that everyone's just a person on this earth that <laughs> you can just ask ask for their opinions and their help and advice and their anything and 
it's it's amazing that so many people are so willing to just take part in whatever you're interested in what you, whatever goals you have yeah it really is that just that old adage that can't hurt to ask right like yeah. the worst that happens if they is they say no and it with certain projects i knew for example that if for stay well and listen if i couldn't talk to uh, David Brevik and Max and Eric Schaefer, who co-founded Blizzard North and made Diablo 1 and 2 with their teams, I didn't have a book because I needed to talk to at least one of the co-founders to have perspective from that vantage point. Um, but, you know, just approach as many people as you can, not only to just, you know, the more lines you cast, the more likely you are to get something, but also because when you're telling these stories, just like characters in a novel, the more perspectives you can write from, the more I think layered your story will be, the more sympathetic and understandable your characters will be. You know, mm -hmm. you're just giving people more insight into, you know, because the, the president of a company obviously has a very different outlook on how a game is made than the people kind of in the proverbial trenches, like the programmers and the artists who are, who are making this stuff. Right. Do you ever find that uh, you really like listening to whatever a, a certain person has to say and you have trouble not exaggerating them and making them seem bigger than they actually are <laughs> i yeah i did that a little bit at first i, I call it like sexing up your writing and it really <laughs> it depends on like the the scene or the atmosphere you're creating like if you're writing about a really exciting time then you can do that but otherwise as you said earlier everyone's just a person mm -hmm. and so just take a more measured approach because even from a storytelling perspective i mean from that in that regard literary nonfiction is no different from a novel you are telling a story and so in a novel if things are suspenseful all the time your reader is going to be worn out by like chapter five because not everything can be life <laughs> or death you know right. um so just just think about different tones just think about different voices different characters or developers or where they're coming from and write according to that. A lot of people are just excited that you take an interest in what they do as well. So if you have somebody who has, you know, say they're a game developer, they probably don't get a lot of people inquiring about what they do for a living that often. So when you actually show interest, or especially if you're interviewing them for a book, they get extra excited. And then you can see that passion that comes through. And that's always fun. It, it really is. You bring up an excellent point. Like, you know, people talk to, like, I love John Romero. I talk to him all the time. In fact, this Sunday, we'll be recording this on December 10th. I'll be moderating a live stream between John Romero and John Carmack. Obviously, they have a lot to say, but a lot of people have interviewed them. So I, like at Blizzard, I made a point of talking to not just Dave Brevik and Max and Eric Schaefer, but I wanted to talk to artists. I wanted to talk to producers. I wanted to talk to uh, QA. I talked to, uh, her name is Karen Colenzo, and she started out as an office manager. Like, I want to know what, how she viewed the culture at the company. And those are the people who are like, oh, you want to talk to me? Like, they're really excited. Uh, you have to make sure they don't exaggerate anything, right? Like, always, always uh, verify your information. But oftentimes, people have something to say. And uh, a lot of times, writers documentarians whoever will just focus on the so-called rock stars and get their perspective do you find that they uh that the verification gets overwhelming or anything like do many people do that exaggeration thing uh, <laughs> so, okay so chapter 30 of long live mortal Kombat gave me 
literal migraines for most of last spring. Um, I'll have to send it to both of you. Ars Technica published it, and my phone blew up. Because what happened is there's this guy named Dan Piscina who played uh, Johnny Cage and the you know Sub-Zero and Scorpion in the original game and Mortal Kombat 2 and the other ninjas. He had a falling out with John Tobias and Ed Boon. And for years, he's been telling people that I'm the co-creator of Mortal Kombat. I had the idea for this. And it's I got to the point where... I had to take several days while I was writing other stuff um, and watch a lot of his, you know, listen to a lot of the podcasts he was on, watch a lot of the YouTube videos was on because what I found is that he was contradicting himself. And there was also stuff he would say that was so outlandish that you could just tell it was bullshit. Like in this, in this one interview, he said, uh, you know, we, we were hanging out with John and he was asking us questions and we were like, yeah, you can do that. Like, First of all, all these guys, Dan wasn't the only one who exaggerated, but he was definitely the ringleader. They say, oh, we don't know anything about video games. And then he's telling video game developers how to make video games. Like, think about what you're saying. Think about what you're <laughs> hearing, right? But also he's like, we saw Ed Boone hanging out and he was like, hey, can I come over and help you guys? And we were like, yeah, get over here, making the joke. I'm like, Ed Boone was the only programmer on Mortal Kombat 1, 2, and 3. Ed Boone didn't need to ask your permission for shit. He, he, Mortal Kombat wouldn't exist without his code, just like it wouldn't exist without John Tobias's artwork. So you just have to look at stuff like that. And what I did with Chapter 30 was just go through everything. And I didn't have anything against Dan personally, but I reached the point where I had to decide what kind of book is this going to be. I wanted it to be celebratory. Um, it was actually a very experimental book for me because other books I've just written about how the game how games are made, and I don't really go outside the studio. With Long Live Mortal Kombat, it's divided into four sections, one for each of the arcade games. And after I talk about, hey, and then it was released, I actually interviewed a lot of fans. I interviewed collectors, pro players, just because I wanted to get a lot of fan perspectives on how Mortal Kombat factored into their lives. Like, I heard this really great story from a guy who grew up in Bulgaria. His arcade was run by drug dealers, and he actually was allowed to play games because he beat one of them at Mortal Kombat. And his interest in Mortal Kombat led to a career in IT, and he changed his life and got out of a bad situation. But you also just have to be willing to, to do the work to say, okay, this story is bullshit. And that brings me to the choice I had to make. Am I just going to tell like positive, upbeat stories, or am I going to tell a story that I feel needs to be told? Because there are decades, literally decades of lies, and people are taking this guy's side. And John, you know, Ed Boone can't really talk about it publicly because, again, Warner Brothers, most publishers just like, yeah, focus on the positive video games coming out. We've got DLC, all that, you know, all the usual stuff. Um, John Tobias has refuted him a number of times, but he said eventually I just had to move on with my life and just figure like, hey, this guy's going to talk if people listen, whatever. Yeah. I just figured, you know what, to really like, also Dan is so prolific that I thought, you know, if I don't address this, he's just going to keep telling these stories. And so I, I wrote the chapter. It involved a ton of research, which was satisfying in its own way. And that chapter, Ars Technica published it on October 8th last year, Mortal Kombat's 30th anniversary. And I felt kind of bad about that. It wasn't my choice, but like that should have been a day when everyone was celebrating. Yeah, and really. This that, that blows up and I'm like, 
sorry, not my call, but sorry. Like the website said, like, we want content for the 30th anniversary. We're going to run your chapter. And I was like, oh, shit, great. And my phone just started blowing up from people who were pissed about it, from people who were like, thank you for exposing this bullshit. And I'm like, I didn't do it for a claim. There's a little Mortal Kombat pun. Um, I just did it because it's, I never set out to like expose people unless I feel like what they did is a part of the story. If it's a part of history that really can't be ignored. And a lot of people did ignore it. You know, we've been talking a lot about credits and attribution. A lot of these influencers and podcasters, uh, present company excluded, I'm sure, will just, they interview this guy and they just upload the interview because what they care about is, oh, we have content with Dan Piscina, the yeah, co-creator. Yeah. Don't verify anything because they don't even think about it. And um, I was just like, you know, this kind of pisses me off <laughs> as someone who does a lot of the research, as someone who could not make a living just like, oh, someone said something. I'm just going to, I, I had to do this. There was a situation with id Software as well, where one of the designers who came in on Quake was taking credit for like He said, <laughs> I made the first ever deathmatch levels. And I was like, I mean, people have been making deathmatch levels since Doom. <laughs> you know, <laughs> since editors came out for Doom. Now, what he was saying was, oh, I made the first official, like, deathmatch-only levels. Because in Doom and Doom 2, and even in Quake, you can play deathmatch on the single-player maps. But he was saying, oh, I, I made the first official deathmatch level that was made specifically for deathmatch. And I had to do research. I'm like, actually, Rise of the Triad and Marathon both came out on the same day and both had maps built exclusively for deathmatch. So... You know, a lot of Doom players since December 10th, 1993, when Doom launched, were making maps, sharing them. But the first commercial products to feature Deathmatch exclusive maps release. And it it actually, I don't like doing that. I don't, I care for confrontation a lot less than I used to, but it's part of the story. And if I just ignore it, I feel like I'm part of the problem just as much as these people who will take who will run with anything that people tell them, you know? Well, I mean, if you're a writer worth your salt, you have to tell the truth. Like, yep. If you ignore it, I mean, then you're not telling the actual tale of Mortal Kombat. Yeah, that, that's it exactly. And a lot of people ask me, like, are you worried about getting sued? I'm like, he can sue. I've got <laughs> receipts. The, the, the citations for that chapter are like six pages. Like, I was very careful to be like, here's sources for everything. He actually sued Midway, Williams, the parent company, Nintendo of America, Sega of America, and Acclaim because he believed that he should have been compensated because his likeness was used in the home versions. And he only signed contracts, they all did, for the likeness to be used in arcade versions. Now, there I sympathize with them. I think their contracts sucked. I think they should have been compensated better. But this guy was telling the same lies. And I actually had to spend days writing, like I had to download the official court summations, <laughs> read through all this stuff and cite from it and found out that like, huh. it got to the point where even this guy's lawyer was like, look, he's told me all of this and I've never seen any proof of it. And what are you going to do after that point? Yeah. Like if he, this guy could try to sue me, but he's already tried to sue people twice and lost twice. So if he wants to go, Oh, and three <laughs> right here, but you know, you, you gotta have, you gotta have receipts. You gotta make sure that, you know, 
I can back up what I'm saying, just like anyone else should be able to back up what they're saying. Well, controversy aside, just with all the research that you've obviously done, do you worry that, or do you ever struggle with having too much information in the books? I'm sure you had to cut out a lot of stuff uh, because, you know, unless you just want the book to be 5,000 pages long, um, is that ever a problem? There, there's definitely stuff I've learned, especially writing about id software in the 90s that made me have to shower after I heard it. And it didn't make the cut into that book, which is called Rocket Jump, Quake, and the Golden Era of First-Person Shooters. I'm getting to the point where I don't remember my own subtitles. They're too damn long, <laughs> I'm being honest. It's either era or age. You can buy this book on Kindle and paperback, but it's also free to read on shacknews.com. It actually came out uh, six years ago today, um, incidentally. But... Um, my rule of thumb is i don't sensationalize i'll never include anything just to get people gossiping and talking the way i put it is i'm not i'm not writing these books as mud for people to sling at each other i only write about this stuff if it is if it had an impact on the larger story that i'm writing about in the case of rocket jump i was writing a lot about the cultured id software and how that culture informed the making of quake one two and three there's stuff i learned about that was awful but it didn't impact the larger story at all so in good conscience i couldn't share because that would be just being you know a gossip monger you know and sensationalizing and that's just not how i roll so there is stuff i had to to leave out of that and i don't think i really had to leave <laughs> There's so many lies in Long Live Mortal Kombat that I really couldn't leave any of them out. Um, but, you know, you just have to be, people are going to do what they do. I've read a lot about um, the Trump administration and the fallout from that. And there are certain authors I tried who were clearly just trying to cash in. The number of people who have written books on both sides of the aisle since Donald Trump was elected in 2016 is just crazy. Like, you can tell that a lot of people are just trying to cash in on a book deal. Oh, yeah. And, I read a lot of them and if they're just sensational, I'm like, I'm not going to read this author again, you know? Um, and I try to operate by the same principle. Like I'm not, I'm not out just to make a buck by, you know, sharing salacious and just awful stories. If it, if it impacts the story, I tell it, if it doesn't, it'll be burned in my brain forever, <laughs> but I won't share it with anybody basically. It's so well, you have to also think of the audience you would get from doing that too. Like, do you want those kind of people, the people that like yeah. the salacious details and that's all they go for is the gossip mags and stuff. Do you really want them? I mean, you want people to buy your book, but at the same time, you don't want to be that writer. You don't want to be known as that guy. Yeah. Especially because even like, I think about how it would impact my career without violating my ethics like if there's something that i would share that i couldn't substantiate or that i shared knowing it wasn't really relevant that could affect other developers willingness to talk to me you know because the thing is all these people i'm writing about are still people you know they deserve some privacy um so it, again I, I know i sound like a broken record but it's so worth repeating unless what they did or said or whatever had a direct impact on the larger story i just ignore it good move it's really refreshing to hear you know i mean i know there's a lot of people out there that are actual credible people who do their research and verify things like that no matter how much effort it requires but regardless it's always refreshing to hear 
even if it's about video games and its history, that someone is so willing to put in the work to make sure you're telling the truth instead of just putting it out there. And, you know, for the salaciousness of it, <laughs> you know, so it's yeah, admirable. I, I appreciate that. And the, the thing is, that, oh, yeah, no, well, I appreciate that. And that's the thing. Like, I do appreciate the compliment, but it's frustrating because, like, it shouldn't be refreshing. It should be the norm. Oh, right? yeah, like, that's absolutely. what you should expect. But I think you, you also hit the nail on the head, like, having i work i still work in video game journalism off and on and one thing that's always bothered me is i think that a lot they're they're video game journalists and then there's what i call the enthusiast press the people who are just just love games and want free swag and all <laughs> write about whatever because they just want more free stuff i've worked with these people i've been in positions where i had to fire these people just because you're not ethically you really have nothing to say also you're a shitty writer i am thinking of someone specific but i'm not going to tell you because again this is story salaciousness yeah so yeah um but like that's again you can tell a lot of people who do this because they're the sort of people who interview someone and just run it without looking into it to make sure it's it's even valid you see that a lot with movie studios how many stooges they have writing for them and everything has a great review or they attack, which was actually be an interesting thing because uh, I remember like the Gamergate stuff that went down. I didn't never looked into it too much, but mm -hmm. just like the backlash that people have against critics. So like right. you use the movie studios, for example, they try to shut down any critics for a movie and just, you know, label them as name anything. Um, but I see that with video games as well, where you have people who you don't even know if they're being honest or not because their voices just get shut down. And then, like, you have these bigger channels that are really popular, and you notice the same trend where if it's a certain studio or, you know, a certain developer or something, they tend to always favor those games, and they have better things to say about them. You're like, is that really honest, though? Is that genuine? Or are you getting some – are you getting flown out to wherever to interview right. people? Are you getting all these benefits and kickbacks? I think usually it's the latter. Yeah, I have I have worked for some sites. I won't name any names, but, like – um activision blew one of the writers out for a call of duty press event and when the game came out this is one in like the last three or four years i think our reviewer gave it like a five and activision was like well we're not inviting you to anything else and we were like okay like again we're not here to be your friends we're not trying to be dicks but we're also not here just to you know to, to rub every scratch my back i'll scratch yours that's not the situation. Even, um, you know, influencers, the ones who are honest will disclose, Hey, just so you know, I, you know, they paid for my airfare and, and put me up. And, uh, so, you know, this is kind of a promotional thing. Hmm. Well, about the book specifically, this one is about, uh, the arcade era of mortal Kombat, Right. And you, mm -hmm. you have two more planned for the series. Um, well, first, do you want to talk about what the next two are going to be? Yeah, so they'll be called Long Live Mortal Kombat Round 2 and then Long Live Mortal Kombat Final Round because that's what the announcer says the third round. It doesn't say Round 3, Final Round. Fight. Right. <laughs> so I'm, you know, playing to, the, playing to the theme there, to the brand. Um, what I have planned for them, I think, Book 2, I want to explore the 3D home console era and kind of the upheaval at Midway with them going bankrupt, Warner Brothers picking them up, and then final round would explore the the the, the modern games um i have plans to write those books i'm not going to do it unless 
a certain something happens and I don't really want to talk about it, but there's a certain level of access I need in order for me to consider those books viable. You know, I, I said earlier that you have to have certain sources from all these different positions. And if I can't get those sources, I feel like I don't have a story. So until that happens, uh, they're on ice, but I definitely do have kind of an outline in my head yeah. of what I want to do. with those books. Nice. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, but if you had to guess, do you think you would enjoy, do you think, say, say you have, uh, say you've written all three, do you think you'll have enjoyed writing, writing the first one more than the second two? <laughs> yeah, probably because, uh, so I love Mortal Kombat to the point that all through middle school and high school, everyone called me mortal. I mean, even teachers, they'd say, <laughs> yeah, who has a question? Mortal, go ahead. Like it was known. Okay? <laughs> That's awesome. Probably because I read strategy guides in class when I should have been reading whatever I was supposed to be reading. But um, that was when I was, you know, I was 10 in 1992 when Mortal Kombat came out. And so during the arcade era, I didn't really have a lot of responsibilities. But as I got older, Mortal Kombat continued. I kind of played them less because I had, you know, I had college going on and then work and then family and stuff. Um, so long live Mortal Kombat round one is probably be the most special to me just because it's an era that I lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by lived, I obviously lived through all of them, but like I was there on the ground floor just right. eating up everything Mortal Kombat I could find. But what I'm actually excited about with round two and final round is to hear a lot of stories outside what I knew of Mortal Kombat, you know, because I couldn't follow Mortal Kombat Deadly Alliance on nearly as closely. Like I just played it and then moved on like a lot of people. I'm really interested in learning about a lot of the stories I didn't know from those eras. So I think that holds its own appeal. I'm probably going to learn a lot that I had no idea even happened. Whereas I knew, I don't know, like 55, 60% of what I was told for long with Mortal Kombat, but a lot of other people didn't, which is, you know, that comes down to like asking the right questions and, and writing it so that it's really fun and informative to read. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Um, like the difference between writing something based on like an extreme nostalgia for something so deeply. Like you think back to the the games you played as a kid, and you have a very specific feeling about them. But even playing them now, it's not quite the same. And then you play new games, even if it's even if it's Mortal Kombat One, it's so much fun because it reminds you of playing the original Mortal Kombat games but you never quite get that same feeling. Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, that would be, it'll be interesting to get that whole story behind uh, behind all the newer ones uh, based around, based on that idea. And I, it's it's funny you mentioned Deadly Alliance. I, the, the ones I have the most memories of are Mortal Kombat 2 and Deadly Alliance because... Uh, they're the ones that my brother bought. Like I, I'm so familiar with this stuff because I have older brothers, right? <laughs> right, right. So yeah, I I played the crap out of Mortal Kombat two, and I I watched my brother play the crap out of Deadly Alliance. <laughs> <laughs> and in no, fact, I was a sit- you you mentioned uh, I, I was the older brother in that situation. Uh, I was yeah. like, hey, Daniel, he's six years younger, like check out this game that I should totally not be showing you, but it was fun. <laughs> and you mentioned strategy guides. Uh, I have something here. <laughs> oh, let's see it. This is my this is my older brother's old strategy guide from Mortal Kombat Two. It's in oh. it's like in pieces. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, I I love that book. Let me show you. Uh, I have that somewhere. I think. Yeah. Okay. So I have that one. Oh, that's so cool. That's the home version. <laughs> and then I this one. This one I've had since I was a kid. This one uh, I hadn't had. It's the same thing, but for the arcade version. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> that's great. That like a lot of these like Brady games and Prima could double dip. Like we're gonna put out a strategy guide for the arcade game and then the home ports. Ha 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 ha. But I was like, that's not right. Take my money. You know, I bought them both. So, yeah. But no, I, I love the strategy guides. I, I have most of this stuff, like this entire shelf, that one, a lot of it is strategy guides just because from a writing perspective, as a kid, I would read those like they were novels. I just loved how they were put together. Um, loved how the writer chose to present the information. It was just a story to me. So that's really cool that you're able to get your hands on that. Yeah, I actually remember bringing uh, the Final Fantasy VII strategy guide to like my fifth grade class just to have. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. That's I love strategy guides too, man. It's a shame that that's yeah, like a it's... lost industry. Yeah, that's one thing kids don't have today. They just watch walkthroughs and stuff. They don't get that experience of actually reading. I mean, it makes you feel like you're doing something versus just watching somebody play a game. Yeah, you know, there was, um, so last Friday, December 1st, I was part of this live stream for charity where I was racing a friend of mine, a fellow editor, in, um, we're just going to race for two hours in Resident Evil 4 remake separate ways. Um, and I was looking up, like, I, I've always been kind of fast. I, I love that game. It's my game of the year, by the way. I love Resident Evil 4. I love the original, love the remake. I just bought it. And, <laughs> oh, man, it's so good. You're going to love it. Um, and I was looking up like, okay, I know some speed running strategies from playing the hell out of this thing, but like, I'm interested in like some more for these tough parts. The information's not out there. Um, no one's written an FAQ. I'm old enough to, you know, I, I went, I spent a lot of time on game FAQs. Um, watching videos isn't always helpful either because like what I like to do when I, when I look up a written guide online I'll do a control F and like look for a certain keyword, like a level or a boss and go right to it. Whereas a video, you're like, I just have to skip around. It's mm -hmm. kind of annoying. Yeah. But I had the same thought. Like I love strategy guides. And if I would buy a game, I would just buy the strategy guide. I always like to try myself, but I get, if I get stuck, I'm 41 years old. I have a lot of books to write. I'm just going to look <laughs> up the solution and keep going. But also I'm just going to sit down when I'm done and like read this thing like a book. Cause they're just so fun to read to me. I, I'm missing them. Well, since that's this... one of the arguments me and Bryce always have is that <laughs> uh, he's a purist. He has to play the game through without looking anything up. And I don't have the time for that. I don't care if I'm struggling. I'm looking it up and I'm just going to beat the game. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, like I it because it, okay. uh, <laughs> I my era already had all that stuff. Right. So I, I, every single game I played, I always cheated. <laughs> I always looked it up and I never got that actual satisfaction <laughs> of just beating it myself. So nowadays, unless it's like a game that I don't really care about, I want to try to, and, and I have the time, I want to try to put forth the effort to actually beat it the way it was made and like have that experience that you had back in the Nintendo era or whatever, the arcade era or whatever. Uh, that I couldn't, that I, right. well, that I didn't experience. Yeah, I think, I think that the internet and just technology in general are both helpful and, um, 
put people at a disadvantage in certain ways. Like one of the really exciting parts of Mortal Kombat, when people think of Mortal Kombat, they think of blood and fatalities, but secrets, like secret characters, like fighting reptile at the bottom of the pit in Mortal Kombat 1. Okay, Mortal Kombat 1992, because those geniuses at NetherRealm mm. decided to call it Mortal Kombat 1. Um, and, but when you would go into arcades, like nobody just knew that stuff. So you'd hear these rumors like, hey, there's a, there's a green ninja. And you're like, what? And you, you didn't know if it was true. And so there was this like air of mystery, this, this really cool and fun aura around this game. Like think about it. You're a kid on the playground and your friend just comes up and says, hey, I just play this video game where you can rip off the other guy's head. And you're like, <laughs> what? Nobody does that. Like this is the early 90s when most people thought of video games as like, oh, that's Nintendo. Mario's not going to rip off Bowser's head. That's just inconceivable. <laughs> and I feel like the internet, a lot of that now is just out, like less than 24 hours after a game is released. And there's nothing wrong with looking it up, but I feel like people are also missing kind of the fun of like talking and sharing information, which is why actually in the past few Mortal Kombat games, um, they've, they've snuck in brutalities that you can only do under very specific circumstances. And there are still ones way back from like Mortal Kombat 10 in 2015 that people haven't found yet. And I really mm. have a lot of respect for studios that are able to, to put enough of that stuff in a game to where people can't just spoil it on day one. And it's also just exciting. Like it's a player. If I find something that no one else has seen, that's just fun, you know? Yeah, and that's oh, yeah, definitely that's something that would be fascinating to hear if, in your future books too. I definitely plan on covering it because it's such a fun part of the mystery, and a lot of the brutalities are done by classic characters that reference their fatalities from like the arcade era. Like, uh, you know, I think Katana had like her kiss of death where you expand it and blow up. And she'll even do the Mortal Kombat 2 pose where she flourishes her fans and bows. And it's just like, oh, man, it's a cool little Easter egg if you play that game. Even if you didn't, it's a cool-looking execution-style move, you know? So everybody's happy, except parents and, and senators. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about nostalgia, um, I didn't get to live through the arcade era. Uh, not not the, uh, you know, it was they were still around when I was little. Um, right. but you know, this, there was this one that hung on in my local mall for a while that I went to all the time. Uh, and when I, when I was growing up, it was already stagnating, but I was still going to it all the time, checking all that stuff out. But, uh, you know, I never got the full experience of it. Cause like kids my age could pretty much care less cause video games were already very much at home and better than what was in the arcade. Uh, and I, right. I always think about how it's something I feel like I missed out on and, uh, I love hearing people talk about it or seeing it in movies <laughs> and stuff, you know, like and something like stranger things, even they, they, they do a yeah. good job with that. And, uh, at one of the last podcasts that Caleb and I recorded recently, we were, <laughs> we were going on about that feeling of, uh, l l like how I, I feel like I have more of an attachment to old things that I, that I didn't experience than than the stuff that actually went on in my lifetime yeah that makes sense especially where entertainment is concerned i definitely try not to be that old man yelling in the cloud I, I think i think that video games have never been better like there's a type of game out for everyone now right. which is really cool 
Um, and we're really no longer in the era where if you say I play video games, people just kind of shun you like, oh, you just live in your mom's basement playing games and killing your friends in Dungeons and Dragons like that era is long gone, which is cool. But I also feel it comes with a lot of a lot of this weird baggage, like there are like microtransactions and stuff yeah. and games that are always online. So once the servers are shut off, that game is just gone like a historian as a historian that bothers me like I can never play this game again i just have to watch videos of it have you ever um, gone down those wormholes where it's like those uh i forget the name of those type of games but where it's like a big server and then everyone just hangs out and does stuff and there's so many that are just like dead worlds now that somebody's still paying for the server so it exists and you can explore it like there's a lot of them on steam i think you can explore it but there's just nothing there and it's weird yeah and like i i had a so i worked at a, a walden bookstore in college and one of my assistant managers loved this mmo called star wars galaxies so much that like apparently i never played it but like apparently you paid a subscription but you only got one character so he was he was he had like three characters which means three subscriptions a month <laughs> and like eventually that game went offline and he talked about how in the final minutes of the server, a lot of people were gathering in like cities and on hills just to kind of enjoy the last few minutes of this game together. That's really special, but it's also sad to think that this character that you had an attachment to is gone. And also just from a consumer perspective, it's like, wait, you're telling me I bought this game, I paid all this money in subscriptions and I can't play it ever again? Like I, I tend to avoid always online games for that reason like blizzard is ultra successful but one day world of warcraft is going to go dark and that's mm -hmm. sad to think about so i feel like i still love to play a lot of 16-bit games especially not just because they're nostalgic but because that's the game it's a complete package there are no add-ons you don't have to like log in every 24 four hours to authenticate your connection and prove that you bought it it's just the game and it there's something really kind of fun and almost peaceful about that to me you know it's being disconnected from all this other stuff it's just you and the game and you get to experience it and even if you play it a million times you know we all have old favorite games where it's like i know exactly what to do and it's like reading a book that one of your favorite books or watching a tv show or movie that you love so going back it's just yeah, it just gives you this feeling, like this peace, like you said. Uh, you don't have that with those online games. I mean, I guess a lot of those is more community-based. Like, people feel like they're a part of something bigger. Uh, right. But then, you know, like, it's a life cycle. Once it dies, then what? You're just abandoned or everybody moves ship to something else? It's, and you're paying all this money? I'd rather just own something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's funny because, like, I, I'm a little contradictory. I prefer... In many ways, I prefer digital to physical. Um, when my wife, my, my wife and I moved from California back to Ohio, which is where we live now and where we met, um, we had to find a place. It took a while, so we kept most of our our furniture and belongings in storage. And I didn't have access to a lot of books. Some I hadn't read yet. Some I wanted to reread. And so I started buying on Kindle. And it was kind of nice to know that, like, no matter where I am, I have access to these eBooks. I don't have mm -hmm. to like pack them up and keep them somewhere. But at the same time, there are definitely downsides to that. Like just this past year, I believe, 
Nintendo was like, hey, the Wii U and 3DS eShops are dead. And there were certain games you could only buy from those shops. So that's why I feel like, like I, I love emulation because I think it's important. Like in a lot of ways, emulation is the only way many of these games are going to be preserved. And just, it's really weird to me that like, you know, publishing, film, music, those industries generally treat what they create with a lot of respect. They get its significance. It's not like someone's album is going to disappear forever. Like that might happen, but it's the exception of the rule. It seems like games are treated as just commodities. Like we're going to release it. I think annualization is a problem. Like Call of Duty, if you miss one, it's like, ah, I'm just going to get next year's. And so Activision, et cetera, knows that they can probably take those servers down sooner rather than later because most people will have moved on to one of the newer games anyway. And I think Overwatch is just an obscene example. Like when Overwatch 2 came out, it just overwrote Overwatch 1, which is like, what? That game is just gone now? Like <laughs> that just is anathema to me. I'm, I'm not on board with that. Um, so I play a lot of new games, um, but uh, I definitely prefer retro games, not just because they're old, but because I, I know that they're not going anywhere, you know? Well, man, we're over an hour, but I feel like we could talk endlessly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, this has been really fun. I, <laughs> I appreciate it. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's been awesome having you here and telling us about your writing and talking Mortal Kombat. Before we let you go, I have a few. Uh, I have a few things. How do you balance? How do you balance your uh, your reading, your writing, and everything else you do w in video games? Very poorly. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I am, like I said, uh, I, I'm a workaholic, self-professed. Um, even I need downtime though. And I, I kind of screwed myself this year because I got to a point where I was taking on so many projects, some with publishers, some just on my own every day of the week is devoted to a different project. Like Wednesdays is, you know, Wednesdays are days when I work on this book, Fridays are this other book. Um, I think a lot of it honestly comes down to discipline and organization. Like I I'm very routine oriented. So if my routine changes or i don't have a game plan like one thing i do every monday is i think about all right i know that every tuesday i do this certain thing but what am i going to do specific to that thing i need a game plan and even if you feel behind if you're able to check things off you feel and you're reminded that hey you did accomplish something it might not feel like anything but it is something and then weekends i don't work at all that was kind of my wife's rule and <laughs> i don't want to piss her off um but it's also like it's also a good thing like I am a workaholic, but even I need to rest and let the creative juices recharge, you know? So I guess the short answer, I don't give short answers. You might've noticed that about <laughs> me by now, but you know, just, you know, if you're organized, you'll find that balance kind of comes from that. Right. I had a really good routine for a long time and, uh, uh some life crap happened and screwed it all up. I'm trying to get back to it. It's so hard to get back to it. Oh yeah. Life, life happens. You have to be flexible every now and then it is okay to say, all right, I got to pivot or you know what? I need a day off. That's okay. Right. Because, you know, as long as you have, as long as you're organized, you have the schedule, you know, that there are things 
that you can that you can do once you're feeling up to doing it. Word. So the prerogative of our podcast is to talk about video games and their literary counterparts. Do you think there's a video game for you that always makes you want to read or makes you think of a specific book or vice versa? Yes. That's a great question. Um, I I don't play them much now, but when I was a kid, I played a lot of point-and-click adventure games. And one of my favorites was Gabriel Knight and Gabriel Knight 2. And in those books, you know, Gabriel is a writer and he gets mixed up in all this like supernatural stuff because he's, you know, researching for a book. Um, and I always feel like that just, it's like Stephen King writes about writers a lot. And so it mm -hmm. kind of gets me in a writing mood to like read his books or play those games. In fact, Jane Jensen, the lead designer of the Gabriel Knight games, actually wrote novelizations of the first two gabriel knight games so a lot of times if i don't if i don't have time to play the book i'll just read the novel and it's kind of like reading a strategy guide that's written as a story oh that's cool yeah i think uh, i don't know what caleb's uh favorites are but uh i think my favorite pair that we've covered so far uh, on the podcast are uh, we read american gods by neil gaiman and then we uh the game that went with it was final fantasy 9 <laughs> uh oh, okay which like okay. a kind of any final fantasy could go with it because we were talking about like the summons and stuff like that and, and uh the mythology the classic mythology that they that they use for those um but i thought those were really fun uh or at the mountains of madness and uh super metroid we did recently Oh, those are great ideas. Now you're making me want to both read those <laughs> books and play the games. You should check out the episodes. I think they're I think those are really fun ones, especially the Super Metroid one. Or the I, I definitely will. You got a, a lot of fun to talk to, so I'm gonna definitely check them out. Sweet, that'd be awesome. Well man, well, Caleb, what do you think? What are your favorites? I go more with genre. So like we played, you know, deja vu. And that's what made me want to read Black Mailers Don't Shoot by Raymond Chandler. Just put me in a noir mood. Uh, mm -hmm. I play, you know, like, uh, I'm just thinking of uh, point and click games because you brought them up. But like Uninvited, that makes me want to read like uh, The Shining or something that has to do with haunted houses. So any yeah. kind of genre, that's usually how it goes for me. If I hit a genre that I like, uh, that makes me want to read that genre. So if I play Zelda, obviously I want to read some kind of fantasy or sword and sorcery stuff. Uh yeah, so I don't have a specific favorite, but usually it's genre stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess even along those lines, when I play Dark Souls games, it's kind of that like dark, almost gothic fantasy, medieval fantasy, and I'm always tempted to reread Game of Thrones, uh, well, A oh, Song yeah. of Ice and Fire, just because the atmosphere, you know, I I would actually love to read. It'd be interesting to read novelizations of Dark Souls and how you how you would do that given that they only feed you like scraps of story mm. here and there and that so much of it is down to interpretation right hmm. well this has been so much fun thank you again for sharing your time with us david uh i would definitely want to have you back again sometime i don't know uh what, what's your what's the next book that's coming out uh so I um, wrote this book called Hell Beneath that will be released this Sunday, December 10th, as oh. an exclusive um, 
item or collectible in John Romero's Sigil 2, his new episode for Doom that's coming out. Okay. And um, earlier this year, I released... Actually, it's not out for the public yet. It was only to backers. But next year, I'll have this book called Cool Stuff coming out. <clears throat> cool with a K, because it is a Mortal Kombat book. Um, that includes a bunch of bonus interviews I did about Mortal Kombat that I couldn't really justify putting uh, into the book because, of, as Caleb mentioned earlier, like it, if your chapters of your story gets too bloated, you can kind of lose the plot there. Um, but I still liked the interviews. They were still fun, so I still wanted to release them in some form. So that will be cool stuff next year. Awesome. Well, excellent. Where yeah, can well, the people find you? Yeah. Well, you can find me at David L. Craddock on Twitter, X, whatever it's called this week, for as long as it remains standing. Uh, you can also find me on my website, davidlcraddock.com, which is in so dire need of an update. But you can find me there um, and on Facebook, David L. Craddock. Oh, excellent. Uh, yeah, well, everybody, go buy his book. It's long live Mortal Kombat. <laughs> and I, I just want to thank you guys uh, for having me on. This has been, it just feels like, well, what we were doing, just hanging out, kick back with some drinks and talking about books and video games. So yeah, thank man, you that, again. This has been a lot of fun. The way it should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening to Arcade Bookshop. Stay tuned every other Monday for new episodes of the show. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like listening to us, shoot the shit about video games and books, please tell a friend to listen. Personal sharing is by far the best way to help us uh, grow and continue putting out good content and increasing the quality of the show. Rate and review if you can. You can follow us on Instagram at arcade underscore bookshop and uh, TikTok and YouTube at arcade bookshop. If you have any game and book recommendations, you can message us anywhere. Email us at arcadebookshop at gmail.com love to hear cool ideas for the show and not have to think of them all ourselves and caleb what are you doing with uh drunken pen um depending on when this episode drops we just uh interviewed steven giawanu about his novel yesteryear uh he is uh mostly a historical fiction writer and he has a lot of fun stuff yesteryear is about the lone ranger and its creator and it is a fun noir story so check that episode out, and uh, we have a bunch more guests coming on. If you want to check us out on the old social medias, uh, at DPW Podcast on everything that we're on. Sick. Thank you all again for listening. Hope you enjoyed us and uh, our time with David L. Craddock. And maybe do as we do. Keep a controller in one hand and your book in the other. <laughs> <laughs>